0: We ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to show us what you'd want us to see from these. And we thank you for your guidance. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 23, starting at verse 1. Woe unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastures, saith the Lord. Therefore thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, against the pastors that feed my people, you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, says the Lord. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord." Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will raise up unto David a righteous branch, a king, shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judas shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called, The Lord Our Righteousness. Therefore, behold, the day comes, says the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord lives, but which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But the Lord lives, which brought up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. So here is Jeremiah speaking God's word and his, his first one is, Woe to the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. In other words, the religious leaders who were not taking care of the flock. And you know, this is one of the things I look at in our day and age. How many pastors out there are not really taking care of their, their flocks? They're not teaching the word of God. They're not they're out there, they're hirelings, they're out there for money. Um, and you know, one of the things that really got to me when I was on my vacation, you know, my memorial. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the memorial, I guess, vacation not the right word. You know, Wednesday I was looking for any church that had a, you know, had a Bible study, and there wasn't a single church there that had a Wednesday night Bible study, at least none advertised anywhere that I could find. Uh, and that kind of shocked me, you know, you know, because I'm not used to not going to church you know, in the middle of the week sometime, and I was looking forward to just being able to sit somewhere and <laughs> let somebody else teach. But you know, how many people are not? out there teaching their flock. And this is, God had a a high criticism for that. He goes, you want to be a religious leader and you're not teaching. Matter of fact, you're not only are you not teaching, but you're destroying and scattering the sheep. And part of that destroying is by not teaching, but also causing harm and disbelief to God's Word is what he's going after them. And he says, these are my sheep that you're doing this to, and my pasture that you're doing this to. It's not yours, it's not anybody else, but it's God's flock. And he says, therefore, thus saith the Lord, God of Israel, you pastors that feed my people, you have scattered the flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Therefore, Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doings, says the Lord. So God says, you're going to reap what you sow. You're going to get the consequences. You have been scattering my, my flock. I am now going to bring judgment upon you. James tells us many of you ought not to be teachers because the judgment is greater for those that teach. And this is something that is very important. When we take in a step out to serve God in a way of teaching, we are doubly responsible because we are responsible for what we teach. We're responsible for how they, re, how they respond to what is being taught. And I've said before, just because I'm responsible for what I teach does not mean that the people who hear are, have a get-out-of-jail-free card, you know, well, he told me that, and I just believed what it was. And, you know, It was his fault. Yes, that would be on one side. Yes, that person didn't help you. But he also tells us to be good... <laughs> Uh, students of the word and know what we believe and why we believe it. don't believe it just because we're told. Uh, now there is, so there's kind of a two-way street. The teacher is in trouble for teaching wrong and doubly so because he impacts other people's lives but that doesn't give them a, well, this is what I told, I just, I just followed what I was told. I, I decided to follow this cult leader because he was charismatic and, he, and it sounded like he was a good teacher. Yeah, and God's going to say, well, didn't you look at the word? Didn't you, you know, weren't you a study to show yourself approved? A workman that needs not be ashamed. So you don't, it's not a totally free, but the teacher is also responsible. And this is something that is very important to us to understand. You know, God is going to hold the teachers accountable in a greater degree because they dared to teach and they impact people's lives. Because there's always people who do follow what the teacher says without even thinking. And unfortunately, in our day, we're teaching people to just follow and not ask questions. That's the way our schools operate. You know, don't ask questions, just we told you, so believe it. And that's not a good place to be. And it's really interesting that the 60s generation that questioned all authority and questioned everything is raising kids and training kids that are just do what you're told and don't ask questions. They said question everything and now you know, their kids and grandkids are being taught to just blindly obey whatever it is that you are taught. And it's very scary to me and you walk a very really fine line with your kids trying to teach them to question what they're taught but yet be respectful. And that's a very hard line to draw. How do you teach a kid to be, you know, be respectful? How do we look at this whole thing? The, the teachers have a responsibility, and I think some of our public school teachers are going to be in for a shock when they stand before God and God says, what did you do to my children? You know, and they don't think of themselves as religious, you know, religious uh, teachers and everything, but our schools do not teach education anymore. They teach the morals of the, the world that they want them to believe in. And there's going to be a consequence for such such actions. And God says they will be judged. The teachers will be judged. Verse 3 says, And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall, shall be fruitful and multiply. Now, God did this 70 years after they were driven into Babylon. He brought them back from Babylon captivity. And they thrived in Israel. At the end of the Roman Empire, God sent them back into captivity for all their disobedience. And they finally came back two thousand, you know just shy of two thousand years later, to be a nation again, and totally thriving even more than they did in that in that period of jesus' day and 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 everything, because now they are one of the leaders in the in the world, producing more food, being technologically great. And everybody always criticizes them because of how blessed they are by God. And he, this was his promise, I'm going to bring them back and I'm going to make them great. I'm going to bless them. And twice God has done this to Israel. And you know, this is something that people look at and it's very amazing that Israel came back as a nation in the 1900s. That they came back to be a nation and held together and understood what it was that made them. Jewish people. Not completely. They, they're not completely there, but they understand that they are separate from other people. And for a nation that is basically agnostic and a- atheist, they they will tell you that, you know, we don't believe in God, but God gave us this country. This is God's country. This is God's gift to us, but we really don't believe in God that much, and we're not sure there's a God. They're, they're a very strange group of people, but God has called them. God is, because of the blessing on Abraham, which was unconditional, they have an unconditional blessing upon themselves, upon their nation. Doesn't mean they deserve the blessing because it's by grace that they get the blessings that they get. They rejected Jesus. They still reject Jesus. They're barely accepting God as a nation, but God is still blessing them according to the promise that he made to Abraham that I will bless those that bless you, I will curse those that curse you, and that I'm going to give you where every place where Abraham's foot touched is yours. And if you follow Abraham's track, he started in Babylon. Went up the Euphrates, came down, traveled all all over what is now called Palestine, went into Egypt, all up and down the coast, all that area was promised to him by God. And so there has not been one time other than David and Solomon that they owned all of their land that God promised them. And when Jesus reigns in the Millennial Kingdom, they'll have the entire world. You know, They'll have Israel, which will be Israel, <laughs> all of the land of Israel that belongs to Israel, and ruling the entire world. So this is what's in the future for them. And they're still waiting for that. They're still waiting for their Messiah to come and give them the rule from Israel, from Jerusalem that is going to be the rule of the world, which is why when the Antichrist comes and gives them the opportunity to have peace, at least apparent peace, they're going to jump at it because they're going to say, finally, we get, we get what we wanted. we get a leader who's going to, and we're going to be the center of everything. And then they're going to find out that they were lied to. And so but God says, I'm gonna bring these people, bring them all together. The ultimate coming together will be during the millennial kingdom, after the tribulation period, and he brings them all back together and rules from Jerusalem in total peace. So we've had pictures of it, the Babylonian return, the the return in the nineteen forties, and then we will have the ultimate fulfilling of that in the after the at the end of the tribulation period when the millennial kingdom starts and they, Jesus will rule from Jerusalem and they will all be called back together and they will be totally blessed and totally prosperous. Um, but because of the blessings, they're already getting their portions of this. And we've talked about this. Many of, the, many of these prophecies are, have multiple fulfillments in them. They have one immediate so that the prophet isn't stoned for telling lies. <laughs> which isn't the complete one, then we have a spiritual one, and then sometimes we have that in a progressive progressive format where we see more and more of it being fulfilled as time goes on. And so this is what we're going to see here. He goes, and then he says, that not only with that, he will, I will set shepherds over them which shall feed them, and, shall, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, says the Lord. So this I really do believe is the millennial kingdom that he's talking about. Because right now, and in the first time, they've always had fear. They've had nations ru- ruling over them, uh, but there is going to come that time when the Messiah reigns and there's no more fear. And you know this is going to be a very interesting time because it's not just the Jews who won't be fearing and having dismay or lack, but the whole world. You know, and, and this is the picture. when we look at the millennial kingdom, the picture of the millennial kingdom is as close to paradise as you can have in a sin-filled world. All right, there's still going to be sin nature in man. Sin Man is still going to want to sin. There, the demons and Satan are bound, so there is no outside temptation. All the temptation will be from inside, and we have plenty of sin nature inside us to want us to sin without even having any help. But he's going to rule with an iron iron rod, so there's going to be very little, if any, active sin going on because of his harsh rule. Anybody who has not taken the mark of the beast enters into the millennial kingdom. The first generation of that millennial kingdom probably are going to be pretty much on God's side. They've seen the bad, they've been rescued, may or may not be fully into it. A thousand years, you know, how long does it take man to forget anything? But you're right. You're right. I mean, in the first generation will probably stay pretty firm because they've gone through, they've gone through almost hell on earth. But their kids, and then their grandkids, will start thinking, well, what are you guys talking about? What is this really bad time you're talking about, where, where this evil ruled? All we've ever seen is, is good and plenty. So that the babies born in that time period are born with original sin. It's not. Yes. The original sins not made void correct we will have our glorified bodies in, in ruling so we will not have sin nature in us we will not have sin desire we've made our decision we will have our glorified bodies that are perfect but the people that have come out of the tribulation will have the same problems we have with sin nature and, and be born sinners have to make a decision to follow God and be obedient to God and all the stuff that we had to do and and work and be able to say, I'm saved through the same thing that we are, the blood of Jesus Christ, And but they have to make that decision. It's easier on one side because there's no external attack on them. But we already know that we, we have the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the lust of the, uh, the pride of life in us already. We don't need anything to make us sin. They won't need anything to make us sin, but there won't be any external attack uh, Negatives to bring them into sin until the end of the thousand-year reign, when Satan is released to be for the first time an external force to that to that generation. Uh, now, granted, anybody who might still be alive after a thousand years would have some problem. <laughs> you know, would would have known the past, but after a thousand years, I don't know that anybody's going to be alive from the from the tribulation period. So that the people who return have their perfected bodies, and they live. Forever, mm-hmm. so when when they're talking in the Revelation about if a man dies at a hundred, he's considered a baby. Or a so it's all it's those people. That's the millennial kingdom individuals that it, okay. it's it's again because everything is going to be restored. The animals are going to be maintained. The there's not going to be they don't have eternal life. They just have the longer somehow miraculously God restores the DNA. Uh, cleans up the you know the environment, gets rid of the pollution, uh, all the garbage food that we eat. <laughs> Possibly gets rid of the thorns, which was the curse of the fall. You know, so you know we don't know how fully he's going to put it back to garden of Eden like conditions, but there's no temptation outside of it. There's just the original sin that can can lead people, and then he rules with an iron. Iron Rod, we talk about thought police. He will be the actual thought police. Uh, you know, you know, I, wonder, I wonder if I should go rob the bank today. <laughs> no, 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 you're not robbing a bank today. a Yeah. generation that comes out of the are they going to have long life the Because it's going to be a miraculous thing, they probably will have the longer life as well because they're gonna be giving birth to children who have perfect, more perfect DNA to be able to live that long. So I think God's gonna do a miraculous healing of all the people, that's my opinion. I can't imagine corrupt, terrible DNA producing long life people. So I think God's gonna do a miraculous thing. Okay, you honored me to not take, a, take the mark of the beast. I'm now gonna honor you with, with a more perfect body DNA. My opinion, for what it's worth. Because it's all going to be miraculous anyway. Right. Everything that came from the fall, outside of the original sin nature that is in us, is going to be taken, taken away. And everything will be as close to the Garden of Eden as, as you can have with sinful people with sin natures. two so yeah, to, to the people that are still there, the Most likely. Yeah, you, you've got really bad DNA and you're going to give birth to a perfect, you know, a, a really good DNA child is not uh, something that's going to happen, I don't, I don't think. I mean, it's, whether the miracle is to fix them or fix the child, yeah. it's still a miracle, but I think he's going to fix them. And all of this thousand year reign is to give a correction to Satan's last big lie to the world, that we just lived in a perfect world, everything would be Okay. You know, we're living in the age of Aquarius, where everything there's the golden age, whatever term you want to use, when everything's going to be good, and because everything's good, everybody's going to be nice and kind to one another, and there won't be any problems, and and there won't be any any you know bad bad things going on, and that's we hear that all the time. We're looking for this utopia where everything is perfect, and it's not. So God's last statement to, to that lie will be, okay, I'm gonna give you a thousand years of utopia, and then I'm gonna release the, the tempter, and, you're all, and many of you are going to fall to cre- create a major, major attack against the one who's been giving you utopia. You know, and their sin gives them utopia. But because he's ruling and saying you're not sinning, there are gonna be really a lot of people who say, yeah, this guy's giving us an opportunity to do what we want. We're going, to join, we're going to join him and just prove that the last big lie was a lie. All of that comes down to why, you know, because people ask, well, why, why is the Millennial Kingdom, why does he release Satan at the end of it? It's the last lie that he's going to prove to people that you think that if you had a great, you know, Garden of Eden and, and perfection that you guys would be honest and, and good. I'm going to show you that that's not a true statement. And so all of that's going to be what's coming down. Is there anything that you study in the Bible that you should do? Do you have bad opinion? A lot of it, or, is, re- lot of it is revelation. I'm just, what I'm trying to do is get down to a, a certain area, or is it the Bible? It's a lot of it. It's a lot of it. It's okay. revelation, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah. There's long, long study in, in eschatology so or in, in end times. Do you opinion of just a lot of study on eschatology um, you know, and being able to, to look at it. Um, but he does talk about a perfect world. Revelation tells us that if you die at 100 years, you're considered a young, young person. So we know that a, the length of life drastically changes. Because right now, if you live to be 100, you're, you're old. And, he, and he's telling you in the millennial kingdom, if you die at 100 years old, you're going to be considered that you're still a child. Uh, you know, so what's the lifespan returning to, and, you know, if hundreds a child, you know, we're three, four, five hundred, you know, six hundred years, you know, to get to old. <laughs> you know, so we don't know. We do know there'll be births and deaths and everything just, you know, but it won't be, you know, short and, and sin won't be causing problems during that period of time because of the reign of Christ is going to be, like I say, as close as you can get to the Garden of Eden with sin nature being in people. Plus, we're helping him, reign, helping him reign as well, and angels and everybody else. So he's got to have a lot of going on there to help keep things going the right direction. And Satan is still going to be able to raise up an army from people who have lived in a utopia with nothing going on, And say, well, we're we're tired of this. We don't we don't want him ruling over us and step out against him. Well that's like one of our biggest things. I want to do what I want to do. Yeah. Well that's that's the sin nature in us. The sin nature leads us to I want to do and it's not gonna change in in the in the millennial kingdom. They're still gonna wanna do what they want to do and they're gonna be stopped for a thousand years and then when Satan gives them the opportunity to do what they want to do, they're gonna jump at it. And not everybody, obviously, but a number, you know, it tells us a large number goes against, against him. And the whole proof is to say, okay, this was that last lie. This is what you all believe, that if you just lived in a perfect utopia, everybody would be nice to everybody, and nobody would want to do anything wrong. And nobody, you know, and you know, we hear that over and over. Every generation hears that, you know, if we just had, no problems, if people weren't mean, if people didn't do this, if the governments didn't do this, if there was plenty of food and nobody was ever hungry, if there wasn't any storms you know, killing everybody, then, then everything would be perfect. Well, we're going to have that and they're still going to, to revolt, rebel against God. You know, even after they've had everything that they said they wanted. And this is the problem that we have even in our day. People keep looking for, if I just had. If I just had a million dollars and I could retire and have a nice house, and uh, I would be happy. If I just had more fame, if I just had this, if I just had this, if I just had this, then I would be happy. Without contentment in God, you will never be happy with anything else. And for a thousand years, they're going to have everything they could possibly want and have God available to them if they want, that they can see and they're still going to reject him, many are still going to reject him because of the I want what I want. I'm just not happy with what God gives me because I'm not content in God and so even though I have every time I plant, I plant something it grows and and produces abundantly to me and I can I can uh, lay down with my lions and tigers and not have to worry about it, I can play with the with the asps and the, and the cobras and not get bit, you know, and not worry about it, you know. So all the things that they get to play with and do and handle and not worry about, still will not turn them to be content with God as a as majority. And that's kind of hard to even imagine, especially for us as Christians. We going, man, if I had that much blessing from God, I would be just so happy. And the world is gonna turn from, from them, even though they get Everything that seems like they want, but they still will not be content with what they get. And that's a really sad, sad statement. But that is the whole purpose of the Millennial Kingdom saying, you think, you think you'd think you be perfect. You say you're going to be, if things were perfect, you'd be happy. Let me show you that that's not going to make you happy unless you're content with me. And over through the scriptures, he says you have to have your contentment with him. Who is your contentment in? Uh, Solomon spent an entire book of Ecclesiastes saying, "You're not going to, you're not going to be intent, you know. Without God, that everything is worthless. You know, nothing new under the sun. Everything is worthless without God." Spent a whole book telling us that, you know, of his fall. You know, and, and that he tried everything and he wasn't happy, and he literally was rich enough to have tried everything, and he did, and was not happy. So. God has shown us all through the scriptures that without him, there's no contentment. And we need to understand that. And that's what this whole thing is coming down to is he's bringing it all out. He says, behold, in verse 5, the day comes, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David righteous branch, a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. So again, we know that he's talking about Jesus. Jesus came to be born. He died as the sacrifice for us, and when he returns the second time, he will come as the king. All right? God held the genealogies in Matthew and, and Luke to show that Jesus is of the seed of David, from both parents, by the way. You know, in case you, and people go, well, you know, he's Mary's son, she's part of the line of David, but so is Joseph, part of the line of David. So no matter how you want to count him, he's still part of the line of David. Literally from birth and also from, from his father or stepfather uh, that he would be in, in that case. Uh, but he is going to be the king, the righteous ranch, branch of David, and shall execute just judgment and justice in the earth. Now, when Jesus came the first time, he said, I did not come to judge. He said, I've come to minister and do what the Father says, and he came to die. When he returns, he will return as the Lion of Judah, the King, and reign for the world. And in Revelation, there's there's a time of silence. Where before the silence, we see the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. After the silence, we see the lion of Judah coming in victory and judgment. So we have that moment where everything in heaven changes for that split moment that Jesus says, all right, you've known me as savior and and sacrifice. Now I'm coming as the mighty leader, the one that rules and controls and then he comes to, to reign, all right? He's gonna step on Mount, Mount Olivet, it's going to split, they're gonna have the uh, Dead Sea be made alive, a new, new river being formed, all these different things have happened when he comes back and he is going to reign for a thousand years as the righteous one, the righteous ruler with a rod of iron, he's no, he's no longer the soft and gentle Savior. His love hasn't changed or anything, but the expression of his love will be totally different. When he came as uh, on this earth to walk, it was a softer softer love, the healing the, and the care. And only once in a while did we see his anger when he you know, went in with a whip and drove the money changers out of the, out of the temple and said, you made my father's house a den of thieves. And there were a few times when he talked harshly. But when he comes back for the millennial kingdom, it'll be more the other way. He's going to come with a hard, harsh rule, with love and and care, but it's going to be not as exposed as the "I'm here to rule" this time. And when he comes back, it'll be more of "I'm here to rule," and there'll be the soft side off you. But you know, God does the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not going to lose his gentle, caring, loving side either, but he's going to come with a harsher judgment. He is king. And he has to hold that stand in him, in, his, in, in place. And it be that moment in heaven when all of that, all of his way changes and he's seen totally different. And uh, this is what he's talking about. He's gonna come and rule with righteousness. He's gonna come and rule with justice. And he's going to execute judgment. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called the Lord our righteousness. You know, and this is something that the Jews did not fully understand. They believed that their righteousness came from the sacrifices that they did. And God recognizing that those sacrifices made them covered their sin here we see that they're going to finally recognize that Jesus is their righteousness. Just as we as Gentile believers understand when Jesus died on that cross, we confess our sins, we come before him and and accept his gift, we are clothed in his righteousness. We can say this or even now, the Lord our righteousness because he is our righteousness. Without him being our righteousness we cannot stand before God. Because if we're in our own righteousness we do not look very good. Filthy rags do not look good before God. When He is our righteousness we get to go in perfection. And God says, yes, I accept that. And He says, this is His name. The Lord our righteousness. And will everybody in the Millennial Kingdom accept that? No. There are going to be many that don't really accept that because why would they re- reject him if he is their righteousness you know they have to make a decision for God during that period of time just like we do they have to you know make it the we mentioned that first generation probably is going to easily accept him they saw him come from heaven they saw him put the to the the, the beast in you know the, the antichrist into its into his place and and cast him into hell and Hades and, and all of that. You know, they know what it was. Their, their decision to follow him will be a nice easy one because it will be by sight. The rest of them that are born in there, the further they get from that tribulation period, the more likely they are to, to think, well, I don't know what's wrong with you guys. I don't know what you're talking about bad. What is bad in the first place? You know what? What is this death and destruction you're talking about? What was war? What are you What are you talking about? It starts to become more of a mythology that people don't understand, and human beings have very short memories. And I don't think they're going to have any longer memories during the Millennial Kingdom than they do now. All right. Uh, so they're going to be generation after generation that are going to go. What are you talking about? You know, these all these animals are nice. Nobody's ever gone to. We've never seen a war. We've never you know, what are you talking about? Theft and destruction and starvation and and bad weather? What you know you know, back to the days of Noah. What do you mean the rain's gonna fall from the sky, Noah? You know, you know what are you smoking that you can dream up this kind of stuff? You know, and they'll be kind of the same type, you know, <laughs> hey great great granddad, what, what are you smoking over there do you think things you know, you're talking about these really bad things that nobody's ever heard of? And then, when they're offered the opportunities, they're going to jump at the opportunities because they never make God their Savior. They never make the choice to follow Him. And a lot of it will be because they don't see the need of, of accepting Him because they don't know what bad is. And they're not buying into. <laughs> yeah. And that's going to be a lot of what probably happens. You know, even though they're going to see Him reigning. They're going to understand that it's him that is bringing the rain, you know, the, the good, but at the same time not really going to submit to him. And that's the sin nature, not wanting to submit. I want to do things my way. And at the end of the thousand years, he's going to release Satan to test the people that have had a thousand years of perfect, or as close to perfect as human, human being, fallen human beings can be made to, made to behave. So, Jesus is going to come and he needs to still be their righteousness during the millennial kingdom. All right? They have to make a decision to follow him and reject their own goodness. And it will be much harder for them because they're not going to understand as much evil. They're not going to understand evil because they're not seeing it as much. They will know it because they're going to have a sin nature, they're going to know that they want to do evil, they're going to know that they have been stopped from doing evil, but they may or may not want to turn to him, and depending on how bad they are wanting to do their own thing, <laughs> that whole iron, iron rod saying you're not going to sin may be a really huge issue to them, all right? well, you mean I can't go do this? I don't see any reason why I can't go out and harm this person or steal this thing or, or whatever, and God says, no, you're not doing that because it's not the way things are gonna be because I'm running a righteous righteous world but people are going to rebel and be ready to rebel. And I can picture that. I can easily picture that, uh, you know, you've stopped me from having my fun, and now I'm going to have fun when it gets offered to me. The only problem is what you think is fun is not, not fun. But we do the same thing in our day and age, and, you know. It's like, I just want to do things my way. God, you just don't want me to have my, any fun. And sometimes I think, you know, just like our kids and teenagers, you just don't want me to have any fun when we know exactly where it's headed down. You know, if they follow that path, we know exactly where they're going. And yet we do the same thing to God. God, you just don't want us to have any fun. What, what's, You know, you're, you're, you're a killjoy. You don't want us to have any fun. You, you, know, And God says, no, I'm just protecting you from the consequences of that fun that you think of what you think is going to be fun. And it says, therefore, behold, the days come, says the Lord, that they shall no more say, The Lord lives which brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but the Lord lives which brought them up and which led the seed of the house of Israel out of the north country and from all the countries where I have driven them, and they shall dwell in their own land. What is he saying? Everything before this was God delivered us from Egypt and gave us our country. From that point on it was God brought us back from our captivity. And that was true when they were returned from Babylon. They said God brought us back from from our captivity. I don't think it's been true as much in the in the the 40s when they were returned that they believed that God sent. As a matter of fact, many of the righteous leaders have Of Israel say that this really isn't the coming back that God told them of because man did it and not God. Now I don't know how they justify that because Cyrus is the one that told them that they could go back the first time, which was a man. Now it was the the man that God said it would be, but this time they're they're still saying the same thing. Well it wasn't God, it was man that did this, so this really isn't our coming back to be in a nation. I don't know how they come up with that kind of an idea, but... That's what they do. And so they're looking and they're setting themselves up to be a prime example of believing the Antichrist when he comes up and says, let me, give you, let me give you everything you want. I'm going to let you have your temple. Because part of their problem right now is that they don't have a temple. What was the first thing they did when they came back under Ezra and Nehemiah? They built the temple and then they built Jerusalem. When they came back in the 40s, they got to build up their country but they never built a temple which is why many of the leader jewish leaders religious leaders say this wasn't a godly return to israel this was a man's return to israel because there's no temple that has been built and they're dying desperately for a temple they want the sacrificial system to be reestablished because they suffer from this whole thing because they know that even though they teach that if you do good things, God will accept your good things, they know that good things aren't what get get you covered, that there has to be a sacrifice. But you can't have the sacrifice until you have the temple built with the altar for the temple. And they can't build the temple where it belongs because of the, uh, the, the Muslim temple up there, the Dome of the Rock on the top of that hill, which isn't on the spot of the temple they're going to put both of them up there at some point and split it, split it with a wall or something, saying this is the Muslim side, this is the Jewish side. And God said just that in the, in the Old Testament. He goes, he told the, the prophet, measure, measure the temple, this new temple that you see, but do not measure the, the court of the Gentiles because it has been given to the Gentiles. And if you measure it out, it would be just about the right size to have the Dome of the Rock out there in the court of the Gentiles with the temple built on its original foundation and have a wall of some sort out there to split the split the mountain in two. Do you understand this, right? Did he say that they won't call him the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt, but he'll be the God that brought them back from being scattered around the world? Right. Yep, that's what he's saying. He's gonna—you're gonna change who you think you—you're gonna change how you understand who you are. Okay, I was the God that took you out of Egypt, made you a nation. Now I'm gonna be the God that brought you back to be a nation. And that was definitely true of Ezra and Nehemiah. They understood that God brought them back, so it's been fulfilled. I have not heard this much being talked about in in the 40s when they came back. They didn't—I did not hear a lot of this. God brought us back stuff. I do believe there will also be the millennial kingdom uh, because during the tribulation period, at the halfway point, then they recognize that the Antichrist has lied to them and and when he claims to be God, they leave Jerusalem and God protects them out in the wilderness, which appears to be to the north, and God will call them back out. So yes, there's another fulfillment into the millennial kingdom as well. But I think this one probably was talking more about Ezra and Nehemiah on here because that is when Ezra and Nehemiah brought them back, there was this God has brought us back from being scattered. But even in Jesus' day, they understood that you know, he's the God that led us out of Egypt. And I don't think they'll ever forget that portion either because that is their history. That's what Passover is all about. God delivered them from Egypt um, and into the into the promised land so there's always going to be that remembrance in their in their mindset um, you know when they talk about it they don't really talk about the 40 years of wandering in it they really concentrate on the fact that God delivered them from Egypt and they ended up in the promised land because they do recognize that the 40 years of wandering was their fault they rebelled against God. So they understand that the 40 years in the wilderness was not because God didn't do it, but God gave them a consequence for their for their problems. But then they go back to the miracles that God did once they came into the promised land. So they recognize that God is still the miraculous one. Uh, and so they don't tend to blame God so much for the 40 years of wilderness wandering because they do recognize that it was their rejection of his his gift. Not completely, obviously, but, <laughs> but they always re- recognize him as the God that brought him out of Egypt and then put him in the promised land. just took him 40 years of, because of the judgment. Uh, and they don't really look at that. And the amazing thing is when you look at when they came into the promised land, what did, what did Rahab tell them? We know that your God did miraculous things and destroyed Egypt and we are fearful of you. 40 years earlier. And they're still remembering what God did to Egypt more than the children of Israel who wandered for 40 years. Which is really bizarre. The, the nations are going to come and conquer are more worried about their God than they are about the power of their God that destroyed Egypt. You know, it's a it's really very hard thing to understand. But very often it is true that the world has more fear of God than Christians and and believers do. We get familiar with God. The Jewish people wandering in the wilderness kind of got to where they just thought these things were normal. We go out every morning and miraculously this manna is laying on the ground and it's going to stay out there until the sun comes up and melts it away. We got a rock over there that gives us water. In the middle of the desert wherever we go there's a rock here that gives us Water and there's quail that fly around in, in the evening time for us to eat, have a meal. It's normal. It's been that way for most of 40 years, and you know, and they got to the place where they no longer saw God as a miracle-working God. And as I've kind of made it, I, I made up this word. He goes, his miracles became normals. You <laughs> know, this is what he does. Every morning there's this food out here. Yeah. Every day there's this water out here. Every night, there's these these quail that fly at just the right height for us to, to get hold of. These are the normal. This is the way life is. You know, it's no longer a miracle that God is providing for us. And they got to where they got very familiar with God and forgot that what He was blessing them with was not normal, but miraculous. And we, as Christians, have to be very careful that we don't do the same thing. It is really easy to... Say, God is blessing me so much in so many ways that I stop thinking about them as blessings and just and get very familiar with them and say, hey, this is just the way life is. You know, God, You know, my, my needs are always met. I have a house. All these things are good. You know, I don't have a whole lot of problems. This is just normal life. And yes, it is normal life for those who follow God and trust in him and are content with him. When you start talking to people who are not following him and all of this, but when we get to this point where we are thinking that this is always normal and not recognizing it as the blessing that it is, we get ourselves in trouble. Because then we get discontent and we want more. God, you know, I'm just so tired of this. You know, I know I've got a house and a... And a and a car, and the utilities are on, and there's food on the table, but, you know, I am just not happy with this manna that you're giving me. I want more. I'm tired of manna, God. I I want more. We do this, and ours may not be literal manna on there, but, you know, if we have a a refrigerator that's got food in there, we've got utilities in there, and, and generally doing okay, and we're going, God, I'm just not happy. I'm not content with what you have. I am tired of your blessings that you're giving me because this is just normal life, and I want to see I want to see blessings. And we need to be very careful because the children of Israel in the wilderness did just that. You know, God, we don't. You know, manna. You know, am well, tired of manna? And I can almost picture that like, well, you'd be tired of manna. Forty years of the same food. I've worked in restaurants where it didn't take me much much more than about six or seven months before I got tired of the food that was being served at their restaurant. I got to work in a steakhouse and I love steak and I got tired of steak. Now, it took me a little longer to get tired of steak than any of the other places that I worked at. But 40 years of the same food, yes it's miraculous, but the people got to the place where they stopped seeing the miracle, especially those that had been born in the wilderness. It was normal for them to have manna out on the, on the ground every morning they had never lived any place where there was not manna on the ground in the morning, six days a week. They had never lived in Egypt where there was no no manna. That's all they had ever known. They had forgotten that this was not the normal, that this was a miracle and it was not a normal thing. Yeah, mom and dad talked about it being, yeah, yeah, look what God is doing for us. There's, There's food out here every morning for us. But they got, well, what do you mean this is God? This is out there every day. You know, we walk out in the morning and there's manna on the ground. This This is the normal way of life. And then when they entered into the promised land and they had their first Passover, they ate their first meal from the land and God stopped giving them manna, can you imagine the shock that it was to them? Walk out of the tent, where's my manna? Oh, sorry. Now you got to go take it from the trees and the and the and the vines, and you got to go actually pick. You know, grow grow your stuff and save it. And you know, God is not providing for us anymore. The shock to their system when all of a sudden their normal way of life was turned upside down because now they had to live by normal means. Yeah. <laughs> they got to have variety now. Yeah. But there's the variety you want. Now you've got plenty of variety, but now you've got to go work for it instead of just picking it up off the ground in the morning. There's no more rock giving you water. You've got to go dig wells and, and, and all of this. You know, but you know, you've got to think about how shocking this was to them. What was normal to them was the blessing to the point where they had forgotten that it was a blessing. And we have to be very careful that we don't ever get to the place where we think that God's blessings are normal and forget that they are blessings. And we as people tend to easily forget God's blessings. And this is why the Psalms are so full. Forget and don't let me forget. Don't let me forget what you've done for me. Because the longer we walk with God, and the more we do in the righteous side of things, we do get a, a lifestyle that is more blessed than cursed. And we've got to keep in mind that it is being a blessed lifestyle, that that I am generally healthy. Well, I, you know, Some of it is the consequences of doing the right things in the first place, not going out drinking and drugging and, and all the other stuff that will lead us to an easier lifestyle. And less consequences, but also that God just blesses and gives us blessings and stretches our money because we're honoring him, uh, protects us. Uh, I've told many people when you start giving tithes and offerings you find you start finding cells that you never even knew about, your money stretches further, um, you go out thinking you're gonna only buy two tires for your car and you find a great deal and you get four tires for your car. Uh your gas starts stretching a little bit further, you know, just little, little things that we don't even recognize as being blessings. And we, this is why one of my favorite hymns is, Count Your Blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord has done. Because we stop counting our blessings so often. And we, in our human nature, look at all the stuff that we don't have. Well, I don't have this, I don't have that, I don't have this. And we go, we forget that all the stuff that we do has us up here instead of down here. And we're looking up, you know, well, I don't have that stuff up there. And We forget that we're already well above where we probably would be without him, which we can't know. But above him in, in many other areas when we look at this. And not that we're going to say, well, <laughs> look at me. I look up. But to understand that God's blessing falls on us because of our righteous decisions for him. And that he blesses that. And that we keep it in mind that he is the one that's blessing. Because he's not recognized at this point as the one that delivered them from the, from the north. He will be in the millennial kingdom. Definitely. And to a degree it was during Jeremiah and In uh, Ezra and Nehemiah's day that they recognized him as the one that had delivered them from the north so there was a partial fulfillment there and I think it would be a complete fulfillment in the millennial kingdom so it's another one of those two two part uh, fulfillments but it is very important for us to be able to understand God has blessed us and is blessing us and we've got to be very careful that we do not forget his blessings because it is so easy in our sin nature to say, God, why aren't you blessing me? Why don't I have more? Because if our contentment is in him, in him we always want more. More and more and more. You know, I, I don't have enough money. I don't have a big enough house. I don't have a nice enough car. I don't have, I don't have, I don't have. Instead of looking at all that God has given us. And this is why the disciples said, you know, uh, especially Paul said, "I've learned to be content with much and with little, because he says my contentment is in God and what God is going to do for me." Paul in prison was as content as he was not in prison. You know, I, I love the picture of the Philippian prison, the prison in Philippi. He's been beaten. He's been cast into a dark inner cell. And what's it say he's doing at midnight? Moaning and groaning about how bad things are? Which is what we would probably be doing. No, they were singing songs at midnight. Can you imagine the other prisoners? Can't you guys just shut up? (laughs) What can you be happy about in this dark, dank, you know, Rodent filled prison, and you're singing songs, <laughs> and then they get the earthquake that releases them. And you know, it's just an interesting picture. You know, Paul writes to the people and says, In the in, in Thessalonians, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of Christ Jesus concerning you. He was in prison, telling them to be thankful. He's telling them, you know, he's writing about honoring the king, and Nero is the king he's talking about, and Nero's killing Christians and going to kill, kill Paul, and he's saying, give honor to the king. And people are looking at him and going, you have got to be crazy. How can you honor somebody who's out to kill you? How can you be giving thanks when you're in prison? You're going to be facing death, and you're saying, be thankful. Why? Because he understood one very important thing. This world is not our home. His home was heaven. And that was why he said, I can learn, I've learned to be content because, you know, nothing compares to this world, nothing I go through in this world compares to what I'm going to receive in heaven. And I've shared, told people this, if I did, if, even if God did not bless me in this lifetime, and I went through, for all practical purposes, pure hell on earth, what would that be in comparison to eternity with Him? A few, few hundred thousand years in in heaven, and I won't even remember this world. Yeah, you know, won't care what happened on this world because I'll be looking at Jesus and saying, "I am so happy to be here." You know, oh, you! I had a few troubles down there. No, no problem whatsoever. Look at the blessing that I'm living up in here. Is that our thought process? The disciples understood it so well. They said. We thank God He has found us worthy to suffer for Him. On this world we have suffered, and He goes, fine, we'll suffer on this world. We've got all of eternity to not suffer. Where is our focus when we look at God? Is it focused on what's happening in this world, which is temporal, or is it focused on the eternal, where nothing has changed and everything will be good for all of eternity with no trials, no problems. You know, even, even if we lived a great, wealthy, abundant life on earth, it's still nothing compared to God and heaven. You know, where the streets are made out of gold. You know, we try to say we need gold to be able to live and, and God says, well, we're, we're just going to treat gold as something to walk on. You're not going to care about it in, in heaven. You know, gold, I make, gold is so insignificant I make my streets out of it. And, you know, and he, and he pictures all these great things that we think are priceless. And he says, I just use them for building materials. What has what is, what is God put as a high praise and, and high value in heaven? I think it's us as souls. The souls of his people are going to be so high that everything that we think of as being important is just building material. That's what John described the new Jerusalem as gold and gems and diamonds and all kinds of stuff that is being used for building material. And we need to understand that God looks at us very differently than we look at ourselves. He places our souls so valuable that he died for them. That's great value. And yet we don't look at our own soul that valuable or the souls of other people that valuable. We need to be careful that we're starting to look at things the way God sees things because he sees things totally different than we do. You know, he looks at the value of the soul that he died for. And this is why it's going to hurt him when, they, when people have chosen to go to hell and he says he gives them what they desired. He died for that soul which is extremely valuable and they rejected the gift and will spend eternity suffering for rejecting him. Now, and that's got to bring tears to, his, to him. The soul, number one, that he says, this is, this is so valuable, I'll die for it. Rejecting him and spending eternity away from him in darkness and suffering. It's going to be something hard on God just to do that. Now, he knows that they deserve it and all of that, and the, you know, he's got a perfect, perfect understanding of it, but it's still going to hurt to know that I did all of this and I I was rejected. Now, again, he understands things different. I can only project what I would feel, but I really do believe he'll have tears in his eyes as he sends people to what they wanted. Hell. And go, you just don't know what you asked for. You didn't know what you were desiring. Now you're going to suffer for it for, for all of eternity. Lord, we ask you to to be with us. Lord, help us to understand your love for us. Help us to always see your love and your care. Help us to always be cognizant of the fact that you love us and that you are blessing us, and help us to always see those blessings. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you, and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says,